Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first uh, evening keynote of WAF 2018. Um, I'm shortly going to hand over to uh, Jeremy Melvin, uh, WAF curator and veteran of these events. He's been working on it since the very beginning, and Jeremy's going to chair each of the three keynote sessions uh, this year, uh, and this evening we'll be introducing Li Xiaodong, who we thank very much for being with us. Um, at the end of the lecture, roughly, in roughly uh, an hour's time, um, I'll return to this stage and we'll announce the uh, first batch of uh, category winners from the awards. So we'll see um, who, who, uh, who did well in all those crit rooms uh, out there. But in the meantime, uh, Jeremy Melvin, please introduce our guest. Thank you, Paul, and welcome to uh, Professor Li Jadong, uh, who is one of, uh, I think, the leaders of a group of Chinese architects and educators and intellectuals uh, who are taking their place on the world stage and putting Chinese architecture at the forefront of architectural discourse uh, in a way that it has never been able to be before because um, of the use now of digital media and forms of communication that allow people to see what's happening in China when it, it, it could, uh, sorry, <laughs> when, when, it, when it was my wife, um, when, <laughs> sorry, um, but, uh, but, but now of course because of, of, of China's great economic growth and, and, uh, and, and progress, um, so much is happening that we can now, from all parts of the world, see what's going on uh, there more or less immediately. So I think Chinese architecture is leading um, architectural discourse. Now, I think how this has come about is fascinating because it gives a particular section through recent Chinese history on which I, ha I have no expertise whatsoever, but it seems to me that that is what this group of architects and educators uh, have, have, have taken. Uh, Li Jiadong was born in 1963, so he grew up during the Cultural Revolution and became an adult against the background of Deng Xiaoping's reforms, which started China's rapid economic growth. Uh, his uh, life obviously continues in, into this period where China has become uh, you know, economically uh, uh, extraordinarily strong, in some cases, some ways, the leading economic power, but certainly the second in the world. Um, but I think what makes the work of uh, Li Jiadong and his contemporaries fascinating is uh, that he, they show that this sort of enormous economic growth has got a strong cultural dimension to it, both in the sense of understanding uh, Chinese culture, but also in, uh, adding, um, uh, in adding to it, in bringing ideas from outside China and seeing how they work with um, ideas that originate in, in Chinese culture and Chinese tradition. So just as he has experienced a transformation of China from a poor, if vast, and largely agricultural nation into one where at least half the population live in cities now, um, he and these contemporaries have struggled with the challenge of simultaneously adapting traditional Chinese architecture or taking from traditional Chinese architecture what can work in the contemporary world and infusing that with contemporary purpose. And that means drawing on a very wide range of ideas coming from uh, economic possibility, coming from new forms of technology, but also coming from, from other parts of the world as well as from China itself. Now, Li Jiadong studied at uh, Tsinghua University in China and then completed a PhD uh, in Delft, just down the road from here, at Technical University. He continues to, to teach and practice. In fact, his main job he tells me, is now as a professor of architecture at Tsinghua University. The practice uh, works on, 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 on as a sort of part-time job. Um, but he has already um, uh, won awards in numerous different areas, including um, the Architecture Review Emerging Architects in 2009, 
some of you may remember that he won the culture category for completed buildings at WAF back in 2012 when we were in Singapore for the magnificent Luan Library uh, uh, project. Um, he has also won the, uh, the Royal Institute of British Architects President's Medal for Teaching, um, largely for work at the National University of Singapore. Um, and uh, he's also won an Aga Khan Award. Now, I think very, very few um, architects, whether they're educators or practitioners, possibly Peter Cook being one of the very few, who have won uh, both those sorts of awards for teaching and uh, for practice. Now, um, Li Jiadong says, architecture may not be the best choice to get rich, but the best, it is the best choice to enjoy life. So I think we're going to enjoy your lecture. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So the subject today is about identity. And uh, as Jeremy just uh, mentioned, I studied here in Netherlands uh, something like 25 years ago. And I went through a major crisis of identity when I was here. And uh, so my first half of my career is about a crisis of my identity, of my, person, uh, my personal uh, identity. The second half, I think, turned into the identity of my architecture. I think, uh, so my major talk today is about the identity of my architecture. Uh, so we all see the world differently uh, based on what we experienced and what we were told. Uh, so we see the world from different perspectives based on our experience, our knowledge base. And uh, for instance, this boat, uh, mechanical engineer will talk about probably the shape, and the material engineer will talk about the material, and the designer will talk about the aerodynamic shape, how this boat can move easily in the water. But also we can see from uh, quite different perspectives as in how, what kind of experience uh, this boat brought us through this to here and here. A very simple example which tells us something very uh, differently. Uh, this sphere, this globe, is a very uh, common natural shape. But if I ask a question as in, what's, a co what's in common between the stars on Earth in relation to the grapes? They all take this globe shape. What's why they all take this shape? It's going to be a very zen question, right? Actually, if you think through, you will understand that actually that what's in common between these two is the maximized content, the smallest surface. And the reason why, uh, so we understand actually why, because the stars, they need to protect what's inside the surface, right? Same thing applies to the grapes, because the contents of the water needs to be protected. And then we understand also why the leaves of this kind of shape. Largest surface, smallest quantity, right? So efficiency if you take this energy from the, from the sun. Uh, we all know who did this drawing, but very, people, very few people know that Frank Lloyd Wright was the first contemporary architect to use bird's eye view perspective to draw, to present his work. Before him, all the Western architects draw like this, from human eyes viewpoint, to see what is uh, the world, right? Because in the West, we have this kind of philosophy. There's a subject, there's an object. And we look at the object through the human eyes, right? We see all those images. But in China, we don't differentiate what is a subject, what is an object. So we see the world from the God's eye view's point. We don't see the world from, from the human eye's point. And then we can actually see the buildings behind the buildings. Yeah? And uh, this image is a very interesting one because we developed along the way a very interesting vanishing, uh, multiple vanishing disappoint, uh, points for presenting the world. So actually, any small part is a complete on its own. 
so we can see things beyond the walls. And we can present a story in the long scroll. This is a very famous uh, Chinese private garden. And this is the character describe what is a garden. There's water, there's a tree, and there's a boundary. And most importantly in the Chinese garden, the corridors are the most important elements. And uh, the corridor is never straight. There's always meandering around. There's always a turning point where you see the, the garden differently from different perspectives. We're in our neighbor in Japan. We share a similar culture and they learned the architecture form from China. But in terms of garden, landscape, Japan took very different uh, perspectives. And why? So if we see the landscape behind these two countries, we can tell why. And this is a typical uh, Chinese landscape, Huangshan Yellow Mountain in, the, in South China. From afar, close distance, it looks different. And from different seasons, from different timing, looks different. And in Japan, mountains look like this, the Fuji Mountain. They're all volcanoes. And as a volcano mountain, the shape you see from afar, close distance, they look the same. So the natural landscape actually inspired the human culture to build or design our artificial environments differently. So we are different. Yeah? Different culture produces different objects, different forms. But why we build this, our world the same way now? That's the question I'm asking and I'm challenging, actually. This is about uh, 1,000 years ago. The Chinese draw a very, I don't know how to code this well, it's very, it's not about how precisely you draw the reality as reality is, but rather how you capture the essence or the spirit of the object. We also have this kind of a drawing. 500 years ago, we have this kind of almost impressionist uh, artwork. And uh, when you look at China from afar in terms of distance, it looks quite a modern now. But when you look at a close distance, we have a lot of problems. Uh, his name is Liang Qichao. He's probably the first Chinese who realized that China was simply another culture. So before him, every Chinese believed we are the center of the universe. And he came back to China. He studied in Japan. That's why how he looks China differently. Because he has a reference of Japanese culture, a Japanese uh, industrialization process in the end of the 19th century. And he came back trying to reform, but he failed. And the second chance we got is the uh, starting from 1949. The new China was established. And uh, Mao tried very hard to establish identity of a new China, under which we have a very clear described political agenda about what is the new China. And uh, you all know those, those kind of things, right? It's a, it has to be, uh, you know, you need a particular color to somehow present your idea. And then a serious thing happens, right? for about 10 years, and after which uh, China is like a, become an old patient, or become very sick, and recover takes a long time, a lot of effort. 1979, uh, in the uh, very important exhibition, art exhibition in the National Gallery in Beijing, there was a very famous painting, this one. The name of this painting is Father, and uh, shocked almost everyone. The real size of this painting is about 2.5 meters by 1.8 meters. And reality was presented 20 times larger than the real size of human beings. And nothing is pretending. So this kind of a reality we never experienced before. 
and then China tried to reform. And how? Nobody knows how. And we don't, we don't know what is, what is supposed to be the next political agenda, but it looks like it's getting weak and weak away. We start to have TV, but there's no program. And our city is undergoing a major transformation, but nobody knows how. So demolishing first, and then start the next. So the, uh, in the 1980s, uh, the Chinese government invited uh, the world-renowned architects, I'm Pei, American Chinese architects, to design something to showcase what is contemporary Chinese architecture, because we stopped building anything, design anything, for almost like one decade. And nobody knows how, what is the next stage. And Pei designed this one, the Frequent Hill Hotel in Beijing, and he showed this to the government, and the government was very disappointed in the very beginning because they were expecting Pei to design something modern and Chinese. And Pei designed something Chinese, but not so modern. And of course, Pei won the Pritzker after this one because the, uh, the director of the Pritzker Awards was Philip Johnson, who was a postmodernist. And uh, he says, welcome, Mr. Pei, you are now a postmodernist. So he got the Pritzker. And then, uh, when we see this image, we realize that actually Pei tried to use very picturesque kind of techno uh, technique to present what is Chinese architecture, right? It's recognizable in terms of the form. The green tiles, the white wall, the punctuated windows, and uh, the courtyards, right? And after which, for almost like two decades, Chinese architecture practice followed this way including one of my practices in, the, in early 1984, 1984, 86. And so, uh, actually, we, we, what we see here uh, is almost like a trap of modern architecture. Modern tradition, east or west. So architecture design becomes a matter of choice instead of a matter of debate. And this is a, the, uh, a project I was engaged 84 to 86. So I was on-site supervisor for this uh, project. You don't, you don't know, you can't tell actually, when you look at this image, when was this building designed or built, right? It could be 200 years ago, right? It's about recognizable, the Chinese architecture. And then, so we, the, the trap I mentioned that you, you recognize two systems in one building. It's like, uh, this is from, uh, 1960s, the, the fashion magazine's uh, cover, cover page. Mao Monroe. So the building's uh, practice in China is like this. So you recognize these two systems, yeah? Uh, I think in early 1985, I think, the, f the mayor of Paris visited Beijing and he told the mayor of Beijing, he says the best the most beautiful two cities in the world. One is Paris, another one is Beijing. And the mayor of Beijing were curious why Beijing is one of the most beautiful cities. Uh, he says, you have the big roof. And then after which he got uh, the mayor of Beijing, told the government, everyone, so all the public buildings must got the big roof. So that's a typical example. So identity becomes has to be f visible, has to be recognizable, as in the picture's way. And uh, you see that the uh, 2010 in Shanghai, the World Expo, China Pavilion, you know, a pavilion representing China, a culture of 5,000 years, is such a big burden, you know, for architects. Well, you can imagine the, the shape like this, right? China Pavilion. That's the first time the uh, World Expo uh, was held in, in Beijing, in, in China. And those are the top 10 uh, most ugly buildings in China, uh, 2015, I think, from the website. So they selected, every year they selected the top 10 most ugly buildings. And from all those buildings, you can see that they are all recognizable in terms of form, right? Of some identity. And this is the hotel in Beijing. 
And then, uh, starting from end of 90s, last century, the overseas trained Chinese architects started coming back to China. And uh, when they saw the situation, they decided not to do anything, let's not to do anything with Chinese architecture. Let's embrace the modern architecture. So we see all those practices. And uh, you know, uh, one, one culture or particular country moving from a poor condition to a richer condition, uh, and the general character for aesthetic tendency is lack of confidence. So they need to overstate, right? So you see the building, so it looks actually, it's this size, but it has to look this size, right? This is the municipality of Shenzhen. It's actually only this large, but looks twice as large, right? So the building, uh, this is Shanghai. When you see the skyline of Shanghai or Beijing or any other cities like in Guangzhou or Shenzhen, you don't recognize where the city is supposed to be. They're all similar. And like this building, it could be anywhere in the world, right? So now I want to talk about uh, two cases about what I think why identity is important. The first case, uh, is Singapore. I taught in Singapore for eight years, so I know the, the tropical city very, very clear. Uh, Singapore was two years younger than me, so it was established as a country, 1965. And when Singapore was first established, uh, what they did is they, they, they built a legend, the Marine Line. So they told everyone that you know, for the Chinese, we are the song of the dragon, right? So in Singapore, they are the song of the Marine Line. Yeah. Okay, so we need a legend to establish identity, but not enough. So the next thing they do is to invite uh, all those famous star architects from all over the place to build the skyline of Singapore, to establish the city-state as a modern identity of this tropical city. So after about two decades, we see the skyline of Singapore, and suddenly one day, the Singaporean coming from the sea, they look at the, the high, uh, skyline, they realize that those buildings has nothing to do with Singapore, because the designers of those buildings, they do the building, design the building the same way they do in their hometown. Nothing to do with tropical city. So then they start to discuss, discuss what is supposed to be the right way to do in Singapore. And by which time there's an important debate, uh, what we call the uh, post-colonial debate. Uh, the center, the focus of the discussion is about the center and the periphery. So the center, they have knowledge, they have advanced lifestyle, and culturally also very superior supposed to be. And then, the periphery are those countries or cultures that colonial uh, countries, right? So after independence, they, they need to somehow establish their identity again. And in the very beginning, the periphery try to copy, to learn from the center, and the result that is that they never become center, because if you copy, you give up your own voice, and when you get, give up your own voice, you never become center, right? So after this debate, they realized, Singaporeans realized, that if we want to become our own, establish our own identity, we must do independent thinking of what is Singapore supposed to be. And Singapore is not about a culture, because there was nobody uh, 200 years ago, 100 years ago. So the issue is not about culture. And then what is the issue of Singapore? The issue in Singapore is about tropical living, tropical lifestyle. And in the tropics, when you do buildings, you need to do sun shading. You need to get cross ventilation, and you need to provide the, the rain coming into the, 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 the room, right? Okay, then you design the building accordingly. Let's start to design building like this, the double skin. And they design the apartment buildings like this. You see this 
opening of the windows is designed to cater the situation in the monsoon season, where the winds can come in, but not the rain. And this design by Woha won the uh, Aga Khan Prize in 90, uh, 2007 because this particular design. That's inside. So they start with to design like this. Now you can see that it's Singapore. It's tropical, yeah? So it's quite different from the images we saw before. The temperature in Singapore is about between 25 to 32, something like that. And so the living room actually in Singapore is never too hot. So mostly they actually keep the, the, the doors open if they have a, a courtyard. And this is a very interesting design for a townhouse. And uh, it's actually turned our idea about townhouse all upside down. You see, in this one, it's about a porosity. It's about how light penetrating through from the top to the bottom. It's about porosity, ventilation. And in the tropics, when you take a shower, it doesn't matter if it's raining or not, right? So you don't need a roof. Then your design becomes very open. The second case is Hong Kong. You know, in Hong Kong, you don't need architects because in Hong Kong, they don't have land. So they have this much of footprint and they just multiply. They don't have space. That's why they have to do some smaller beach themselves as well. They don't have space. That's why it has to be multifunctional. So Hong Kong is like this. If you like Cantonese food, dim sum is a very typical Cantonese food. And it's about this. It's about standardization, but allow variety. Very efficient. And now I show uh, an apartment of a friend of mine, Frank, uh, Gary Chang, many, many years ago. This is his apartment. And he was born here. And uh, that's the situation when he was born. So the uh, right corner is his own bedroom. And the left top is his parents and then two sisters. And then we have uh, the, the bathroom and the kitchen. It's the size of this building is four by eight, 32 square meters. It's tiny, right? And years later, this apartment become his own. His family moves out. Still the same place. And he designed, redesigned the whole thing. He told me it's, it's like a, a city. You have a square, you have a street. It's so luxury for one person to own an apartment like this. But one day, he's, he realized sudden, suddenly that the, uh, if he's the only one of this apartment, you never use two different functions in the same time, right? But the building, the shape of the uh, space is the same. So he started to think, okay, I shall design something differently. So this is a redesigned one, very simple, but adjustable in terms of uh, uh, atmosphere in terms of lighting, but you open up the curtains, for instance. Nighttime, daytime, daytime, and nighttime. So you see the space changes according to the function and the time of the day. Well, you don't need a door for the bathroom, but there, when there's a friend coming, they're a little bit awkward. Huh? <laughs> and he changed it again. This time, he's, he told me that it could be 70 over times uh, ways you can you can change the uh, the shape of the space. I won't go to details. Huh? You can tell actually. That's him, my friend. He's very happy. So both cases actually tells us a very important lesson. 
that there's a connection, right, between the general agenda or big issues of this particular place. And then the particular program you're designing actually is connected with this bigger issue. So then I will uh, use my practice to elaborate more on what I think should be about identity in the project, not as an architect, but in the project. And this is the very, uh, uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Wu Guanzhong's work. It's very contemporary and it's very Chinese. And my first work is in the Yunnan province, uh, a, a primary school. I did the fundraising as well for this project because nobody knows who am I. Uh, uh, when I was teaching still in Singapore and we did fundraising and to design and build a small school in this community. Uh, this is the situation, very poor uh, mountain area and we managed to gather about uh, 40,000 euros to build a school. You know, it's a very tight budget for a school, 800 square meters. So we need to be very clear about what we're supposed to do in this area. And that's the site. Nothing fanciful, has to be straightforward. And this area is an uh, earthquake pro area, so we need to do the building uh, earthquake resistant. And we need to engage the villagers uh, to be part of the construction process. And that's also part of the, uh, the, uh, the aim that the everyone, the community contribute, everyone contribute to the, to the school. So you see the plan is very simple, very straightforward. And uh, the construction also, you can tell from those images, uh, we need to do everything we can to make the building earthquake resistant. So the way that we do construction is slightly different from the local. The only thing uh, that is deformalized in our design is this staircase. So we want to give the school a slightly different identity of its own. But in general, we need to communicate with the, uh, with the village. So in the end, we have this. Ninety-nine percent of the material are from the place and totally constructed by the villagers. They don't even read the construction joints, so we don't need to do the construction joints. And another reason uh, I start my practice in the countryside is because we don't need to ask the approval from the government. And I'm not registered architects, so basically. And the second project is in the same village. It's a house, it's a private house. And that's the mountain, huh? And the site is here. So when, when this guy come to me uh, when I was still in Singapore, he says, uh, I, I saw your school project. Uh, can you design a house for me in the same village? That's my first client. I said, why not? Yes, I will do that. So we went to the site to see the site. I was very uh, shocked when I see this because, you know, uh, this mountain, uh, what, what do we call it, Yulong Xueshan, the Jade Snow Mountain, uh, is a very powerful and a young energetic mountain. And according to our tradition, you need to balance between the inner yang to have a healthy life, right? So here, the site is very unbalanced. The mountain is very powerful. But we do have uh, a theory in, in Chinese architecture. You see, all the buildings are in kind of a, this kind of relationship with our landscape, with our natural environments. It's about the yin-yang balance if you want to live a healthy life. So, which gives me uh, the thought of how I'm supposed to design this building. Water is in, enclosure is in. So if I, ha I have enough in energy, they will get at the balance. So here we have the enclosure, the courtyard. Uh, we have a large surface of water, which comes from the snow. 
And also, again, the same thing happens with this building is that all the materials are from the place. The, the trees, the, the stone, the rock, and the snow become water. So when you come to the building, you first see this little tunnel, and you see the snow mountains beyond. And when you come up, you see this very quiet, uh, low-profile uh, building. And uh, so now, if you see this image, the, the mountain is not that powerful anymore. It's become quieter, right? It's because the, uh, the balance between the yin and the yang. No decoration, uh, because I think uh, in front of nature, you don't want to do anything decorative. And I don't have any actually uh, particular recognizable uh, form about a tradition as well. So for me, identity is about now, it's about this particular place. And of course, it's part of the overall culture. And the third project is in the uh, uh, Fujian province. And uh, in this case, because I teach, right, so uh, every project of mine is supposed to be research-related. Uh, so in this case, I try to test, test my idea of how uh, the, medic the medical uh, theory of Chinese tradition can help architecture, see whether architecture, intervention of an individual architecture can rejuvenate a community. So this is a test. And this is the community we, we look for, a very sick, we can see, very sick community. Uh, you, can, you can tell from uh, the situation like this. So that's a Chinese theory of medicine. Uh, we the human beings are supposed to be a complete whole. Whatever happened to your body is an energy flow that is blocked somewhere. So according to our uh, idea, so by acupuncture, or by a particular way of inserting energy into your body, you can actually rejuvenate the flow of energy within your body. So in this case, uh, we chose a site in the middle of the village, which is be, uh, between the two uh, castles. There's a little cream uh, going through, so we built a bridge. It's also a school with two classrooms, and it's also a performance stage for the puppet show. And it's also a playground for the kids. And also, it's a, it's a, there's a shop there, and there's a little library. So it's a multi-programmatic uh, function for this bridge. So connection is important idea, because these two uh, castles, they used to fight with each other, and which is divided by this little creep. So what I did is the make a connection. And I think the connection will be a very good idea to generate enough energy flow in the community. So as in a bridge, the connection, the linkage is important. The kids love to hang around uh, because in the village, they, they don't have any other public buildings. This is the only public building and is in the center, and you know the age between seven to eight is among the most energetic uh, members of the community. So we try to use uh, the, the kids to generate that kind of energy. That's the puppy show stage. In summertime, we open up everything, is, uh, the ventilation will be very uh, comfortable for uh, school. And after which, the building was published uh, widely. And uh, the many visitors, every now and then, the kids will take pictures with those visitors. It's like open up the window for the kids. You know, in this remote village, they never expect visitors from outside the world, right? But now, almost every week, there are visitors coming to the village. Okay, the next one is the... Uh, a little library in Beijing, in a mountain of 
uh, about one and a half hours uh, drive from Beijing. Again, a very poor community. And uh, the mission of this little library is also try to rejuvenate uh, economic conditions of the, of the community. And I was very impressed with the, during the first visit to the village uh, of those twigs. They burn the twigs to cook and also to heat up in winter time. So you, you see this kind of a, uh, texture in the village everywhere, on the street, in the courtyard. So I was thinking maybe I should use this material uh, somehow to build the library. But not as a decoration, right? So the material of twigs is supposed to prevent sunshine in the summer. And also the, uh, uh, it's like a buffer zoom to filter the light into the space. So there's three layers. So after which the interior will look like this. So the reading uh, atmosphere will be just right. Without which, you know, light will be too strong. But of course, uh, my ambition in this project is much more than just build uh, a reading space. I will explain more in other sense. Uh, this is to show, uh, because there's no power supply for this building, so we need to design the building air condition itself in summer. In winter, because it's too cold, nobody goes to the village. So the most important thing to do is to solve the problem of cooling in summer. So the reason why the building is sited near the water is to, we, I need to use the water as the, uh, as the uh, important source for ventilation. Okay, this is how it works. So the, uh, the temperature over the water surface is much lower, right? So we have a tunnel here, and the gate is here. And uh, the hot temperature on the top of the building will suck in the cool air from the entrance and get out from those windows. So when you sit inside the space, you feel the, uh, the cool air and we calculate the temperature inside the room in summertime is about five degrees lower than outside. And in winter, it's a reverse process. So the heat will be somehow stored here and radiated into the space. And again, temperature inside is five degrees higher than outside. And we didn't do anything on the surface it's purely natural, so things can grow, and the birds can find their nest as well. So one day, the building will disappeared into the natural evolution process. In winter, you can see it's totally blend into the natural setting. And we also you know, uh, a performance, a good performance of a project uh, needs to cover two things. One is the morphology. You have a form, you need operation. So in this case, the operation is about how people use this uh, library. Uh, we didn't have the budget to, to buy the books. So actually, we put up a kind of an invitation on the website. So everyone was invited to visit library, to contribute to the library by giving books. And the idea is that you give two, three books, you can take one book away. So we try to use this library uh, to work as almost like a platform for exchange of ideas. Actually, in, uh, just in two months, we have the whole collection. And the next one is the uh, extension uh, of uh, School of Architecture in Tsinghua University. And uh, this is the existing building, and the new buildings is in the center. And uh, this is a very rational uh, analysis of the final form, because the, the space we need to, to, to keep, and also the height limits, so in the end, we have a cube, and the dimension of the cube is 22.2 by 20.2. So if you divide into three, 7.5. And then is you, you 
come with a, a Rubik cube, right? And in China, the Rubik cube is called uh, Mofang, it's a magic cube. And the students coming to the school to learn architecture as knowing nothing, and after four or five years, they become architects, so magic cube. And of course, inside you have to solve the problem of ventilation, uh, lighting, and so on and so forth. So I will not go to details of this. Huh? Uh, now I want to show you something uh, much bigger in terms of scale. Not built yet, it's under construction now. Uh, this is a, a school project in Shenzhen, uh, in South China, near Hong Kong. 20,000 uh, square meters site. And I need to design a building of 80,000 square meters. The plot ratio is four. And you know, for high school, you need space for the kids to run around, right? So in this case, we don't have the luxury of having those things. And then you need to think of something really special to give a clear identity for uh, a high-density institution in the city center. And you know, when we design, uh, as an architect, when we design something in the city, normally you have the street, you have the right line, and you set back for a few, few meters, right? I think it's the same thing in China and in Netherlands as well. So in this case, I try to define what is the red line, what is the boundary for a school, and what is the first line you need to draw when you come up with the concept. So here's, I did a podium first. So the boundary is not horizontal, but vertical. The whole school is about verticality, it's about three-dimensional. And I need to somehow subdivide the sports facilities into 16 small units and to have them overlapping with each other in three-dimensional men. And of course, you need cross-ventilation because Shenzhen is a subtropical area. You need open space for the kids. I realized that when, when, I, when I visited their school, the former school, the kids after class, everyone runs out. So we need to provide enough open outdoor space. Uh, ground level, level one, in between level, and the podium level. And you see the red line actually is the running track. It's not as in the, this shape, but in a very different shape, but also 400 meters when you do the whole circle. So you need to explore more uh, space in three-dimensional way. The greenery, the vertical greenery actually is, a, is about the sun shading. It's supposed to be part of the uh, ecosystems for the whole uh, school. And this is, uh, you see the corridor? That actually is another running track. We have two running tracks overlapping with each other. And for, I think for identity of an institution for the, for the school kids, uh, you need to have two things. One is the standard package of education. Another one is to allow the students to have space for creativity. So the mutation of this particular shape is to give the identity for the kids to, to, you know, to be creative, to be different. We have everything, a uh, swimming pool as well. And that's the bird's eye view. In two years' time, this will be finished. And next one, uh, I think it's also under construction now. It's a temple. I always dreamed of designing something religiously uh, connected. So this time, I got this chance to design a temple, a Buddhist temple. And you know in China, all the temples, are the traditional temples, they are all not for uh, people to meditate. 
And uh, I think the original idea of the Buddha is to let everyone discover their own Buddha inside themselves, not pray for Buddha. And all the temples in China are places where you pray for Buddha. So in this case, I try to design a temple differently, uh, by different settings, and by downsize the, the form of architecture, this temple is about environments. It's about discovery along the way. When you go through the temple, it's about turning around and discover things. You need to find your way. It's like the maze. And from different turns, you need to find different things along the journey. And this is the main hall. The only statue of Buddha is inside this hall. And after which, you will see the whole mountain presented in front of you. And this is my latest work, uh, a factory, a renovation of an old factory. Uh, uh, I tried to engage with, you, uh, you know, uh, I think for factory, normally it's about working, starting from nine hour to, from nine o'clock to five o'clock, right? And people go there, work and do things. But in this case, I tried to design a new factory that the workers uh, from this factory would take this factory as lifestyle. Working in this gear, in this factory, is, is about enjoy the process of the day instead of just working. So the, uh, it's like a park. You have everything. It's about experience of life. It's about biodiversity of a city as well. So a community of factory is not just a monofunction, but a multifunctional as a lifestyle. Uh, this is my uh, last image. The left is the old chair from the Ming Dynasty. And the right one is my design. So I try to uh, capture what is the essential meaning of the form of this traditional chair and how to make a modern one, but still you feel the connection between the, uh, the modern one and an old one. So I think for, for, for me, identity is about, uh, it's in generically part of you, right? If we, if we talk about culture. But main, the main thing about identity is the, the project you're working with, not the ego of architects. I think that's the, uh, my, my point I try to make. Thank you. Thank you. We still have eight yeah. minutes. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I think we have a, uh, a few moments for a bit of discussion. Um, if anyone would like to ask a question, uh, please do stand up, because it's quite difficult to see if you just put a hand up. Uh, but in the meantime, I, I could start with a question to, sure. to, to see if we can get some discussion going. <coughs> I, I, I wonder, I mean, obviously, your, your sensibilities have been developed very strongly within China with a particular age in a particular period in Chinese history. Um, but I wonder if you could say something about what brought you here to the Netherlands and what you might have taken from here back to China. Oh, you mean how, how I come to... Yes. Uh, you know Alexander Sonis? I think a lot of people know uh, Alexander Sonis, who actually uh, was, a was a professor in, uh, in mm. Delft mm. and read his book, Classical Architecture, when I was mm. uh, 22 years old. Yeah. It was a very impressive historical book. Mm. And uh, then I look for who this professor is. It's in Netherlands. Yeah. So I came to Netherlands. <laughs> so you came because First. of a book? <laughs> yeah, because the, the reading of this book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you then feel there was something that, that was worth taking back to China from, from here? Uh, you, you know, I, I must be frank with, with you guys. Uh, after four years uh, learning in Netherlands, in Delft, uh, and then I worked in um, architecture uh, for mm. a year. Mm. And uh, it was very confusing for me by that time because there were so many informations uh, from China, from Holland, from Europe, you know, mm. two different ma major cultures. And they are in, in really randomly located in my mind. There's mm. no framework for me. Mm. So it was really uh, confusing. And then I decided uh, not to practice anymore, but rather go back to school. Okay. So then I went to Singapore and to teach and to do research. 
uh, through the process of research and teach. You know, when you teach, you need to have a clear mind, right? Otherwise, how, what to teach, you know? So gradually, I come up with a, it's like, a, you know, you have a bookshelves, you need to categorize which book to book where. Mm. So the research and teaching is like that. You put knowledge into your, your mind. And then from Singapore, you went back to China. To China, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, one of the things that strikes me, particularly about the, 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 the last sequence of buildings, the library, the school, um, you know, is, is, is the use of greenery, but in a very structured and ordered way. Yeah. Is that something that comes from a, a Chinese tradition, or is that something that you invented for yourself, or is it something you picked uh, up? You, you know, for architects, you, you want to have everything structured ordered. So the same thing applies to even you want to apply greenery, I think. Mm. Yeah, but in the, in the last one, uh, the factory one, actually on the top, rooftop, is quite yeah. uh, mixed. Yes, yes. And I mean, the interesting thing about that is, is that you know, China has become the workshop of the world in the way you know, Europe was 100, 150 years ago. Mm. Um, and, but what you're doing is making a much more enjoyable experience of working in a factory than perhaps most other factory workers have had, whether it was here 150 years ago or in China 10 years ago? Uh, I was very lucky to have the clients uh, of this owner of the factory. They were very uh, uh, eager to test and explore different ways mm. of a different type of factory. Yeah. So they just give me 100% of freedom to design whatever I think is suitable for their ideas. Mm. I was just lucky about that. Good. And uh, thinking about the difference between, you know, the, 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 the balance between nature and the city. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, whatever it is, a very short period, a few decades, China has gone from a largely rural country to a principally urban country. How, what, what, what has that left? I mean, we know the cities have grown enormously, but what, what's, what's been left in the countryside? I actually uh, have another project in, uh, in Chengdu, near Chengdu. It's an urbanization uh, pro uh, project, 22 square kilometers countryside, and to make it urban. Mm. And uh, in that design, actually, I tried to not to touch any farmland, right. only using the footprints of existing communities mm. to just give uh, bigger uh, plot ratio mm. to build a city instead of uh, turning the whole place uh, a city. I yeah. think it's important a thing uh, for the, what, what I call urbanization uh, uh, for China because uh, you know uh, we have another 400 million people to be urbanized in the next 20 years, mm. which is like uh, the, the population of the United States. Yeah. And if we don't do the way I think we should do, I mean to keep the farmland untouched, I think in the future we're going to be ha have a major crisis. And, and I think everyone knows about the uh, during the Cultural Revolution, we sent the young, fresh graduates from the high school to the countryside. Mm. What do we call re get re-education? Uh, the main reason for for sending those graduates to countryside is because we don't have employment by that time. So somehow, by that time, only 30% of the population in China lives in the in the city. 70% yeah. are the countryside. Yeah. So we can still absorb those millions of young people. Mm. But imagine uh, 20 years from now, 80% of the population is in the city, only 20% left for the countryside. And uh, if we turn the countryside all into cities, we don't have countryside anymore. And imagine 30 years from now, in case our economy goes down like that, we don't have employment anymore. And mm. We don't have countryside anymore, so it will be major problems. Yeah, and it will be a completely urbanized life, but with no life exactly. to feed it. Yeah, good. Well, I think we're now going to hear the uh, announcement of the category winners for today. But before Paul Finch comes back to the stage, um, I'd like to thank Li Jiajong for, for a really uh, you know, compelling and inspiring lecture about the work you're doing, both, both educationally and in design terms. And, uh, and it really emphasizes that, you know, you may not get rich doing architecture, but it will help you to enjoy life. Thank that's, you. That's my part-time job, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.